0: Start again, start again,
1: begin. Start again, everyone.
2: Welcome to Caterpillar Goo Tales of Transformation. I'm Rod.
0: And I'm Flora.
2: And today we have an interview with Curtis Myers. He's a longtime Austin sound engineer, he works at, uh, at my basketball arena. And he's a great guy. He was fun to talk to. He's got good rock and roll stories.
0: Well, all right, all right, all right.
2: (laughs) I kind of like Curtis's story because it reminds me of certain aspects of my life. Like he just walked into being a sound guy. He didn't set out to be a sound guy. He didn't you know, go through some kind of education process or anything. It just the universe pointed him in that direction. And then he embraced it.
0: You think? there's uh, Oprah says that opportunity meets preparation so when you're passionate about something and or or even like a side hobby you do it and you do it and maybe you didn't get opportunities to make that into a career but an opportunity you know presents itself and you are ready because you've been practicing all these years
2: so you think that's going to happen with us we'll just keep making the podcast and someday it'll we'll just stumble into some great opportunity and Of course. Ira Ira Glass will call me up and say, hey, we need you to come work for us.
0: Of course. (laughs) Keep on doing what you love and get it out there. And yes, I believe so. That didn't happen to him.
2: I guess it did because he learned sound by playing guitar. He loves playing guitar. He learned how to do sound engineering by doing his own sound.
0: I'm going to go off tangent a bit. And um, since I work at a school, it always reminds me how so many children are not getting the opportunity to think outside the box, be creative, be innovative. And I'm thinking of um, Curtis, maybe when he was in school, maybe this gift of his would have come out earlier. Maybe he would have gotten better opportunities, more doors would have opened up if the education system was serving him the way I believe students should be served, which is really not about memorization and standardized exams but creativity hands-on learning oh I go off tangent let's go back to Curtis and music
2: I love Curtis's sense of humor he smiles the whole time he talks and you can hear that smile in his voice he's just got a great great attitude and outlook on life and I tried to give him get him to tell me some some good uh, rock and roll dirt stories tell me some dirt on on some acts that have come through the arena, and he just, he wouldn't do it. He's just too nice a guy.
0: What did you offer him to open him up? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nothing. We, we're, we're on a, a zero budget on this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you didn't get any dirt. <laughs> <laughs> but Curtis was very kind to spend the time talking with me and he was also very kind to share his music he is in a, a new musical project for him it's called cave pool and he just released his album you can find it on cd baby there is a link on the website for where you can find that music he is a he is a shredder he's got that he's got fast fingers so check out cave pool here's curtis myers enjoy That burn orange,
1: because I'm from- That's when I started uh, recording when I was ten. And I just had like a two-track machine that I could do ping-ponging. You record on one track, and then you take that track and play along with it, and then record onto the other track. So now you have two things on the one track, and then you play that one back and record on it while you're racing it, and you just keep. And then you have three things on that track, and then. And as you go, you sort of lose stuff in the quality. Uh, That's pretty much how I started in recording and figuring out how to lay down and and make sounds and stuff. guitar just became natural to me. I just sort of understood it. You know, I could I could look at how other guys were playing. And I said, oh, I can do that. And so I understood that. And then I just was into the guitar like crazy. You know, and then I heard Johnny Winter, and I heard Jimi Hendrix. The day I bought my first Jimi Hendrix album, the guy at the record store, he said, uh, Oh, that guy just died today. And uh, I was pissed at the guy for telling me that, which is like, what'd you tell me that for? You just ruined it. It's my favorite guitar player, you know? And then uh, that was in the Philippines. So I bought it at the PX on base, you know? I was just a military brat, 14, ninth grade. You know, and I was really into Hendrix and Johnny Winter. I thought everybody else sucked, you know. I kind of like Clapton a little bit, you know. I mean, was okay, but I just was into the faster guitar players, shredders. They didn't call them shredders back then, they just, guitar players, I don't know. But I liked Roy Clark, because he was fast. And I liked Glenn Campbell, I thought he was pretty good too. If they played fast, I liked them. You know, I didn't probably didn't even know who Chet Atkins was at that point. So how'd you turn it into a professional, professional um, gig? Well, I first went to the teen club, on bass, and I played with my band. First, we were called the Thunderbirds, and then we found out there's another band called Thunderbirds. Of course, there was been a, probably a lot of Thunderbirds, and then uh, one guy said Blueberry Doorknobs. <laughs> so that was our must name have been for the '60s. Huh? Yeah. Well, that was about turned into the '70s. Yeah. About that point. So, and all I had was I had a some kind of weird um, turntable that I'd turned into an amplifier, and I had a, a 10-inch speaker that I would set out, and that was my amp. And uh we just played the shit out of it. You know, we only knew probably four or five songs, and we none of us would sing because, you know. But I, I mean, we'd make a little bit of money. They'd give us uh, French fries, and uh, they'd give us, you know, Cokes for playing and stuff. I'm a ton of bridge. So then I moved to the back to the states here to Austin, and uh, uh, the first band—I mean, within two months I was playing in a band. I loved playing guitar. I just—I would skip school and go play guitar. Galaxy way Went to this place and I met this drummer and I liked the drummer. He was 14, I was 16 and he was huge. He was like six foot and swole up like, he just started, I don't know if he was taking steroids or what, but he got real muscle bound and his brother was a guitar player, but I didn't like him cause he was shitty. I thought he was shitty. And then uh, we found this bass player, and, and he was great. And he was like Sasquatch, And I was just a little bitty guy. And uh, so I played with these guys, and I didn't like standing up when I played, and I didn't like, and I, I was writing music, but I didn't like um, vocals. I really didn't, I didn't like listening to vocals. I'd rather just hear the guitar, you know? So all the music I wrote was all instrumental. found out that after I learned a song by Hendrix or Johnny Winter, I didn't like it anymore when I'd listen to it. So I quit learning other people's songs because I figured if I learned it, then I wouldn't like listening to it anymore. Because it would just kind of, um, I don't know, it just did something to me. If I learned the song, then it wasn't any fun playing it or listening to it anymore. It was kind of weird. Now it's different. Now there's certain things I like learning. You know. Uh, as I'm older now, I've, I've learned to appreciate learning other people's songs. But back then it was kind of like, eh, it takes, the, I don't know, the fun out of it when you once you learn it. And um, so I, I basically went playing and playing with these guys, and we got some gigs. We got a, a Battle of the Bands at the uh, Sacred Heart Church over there on the northeast side of of Austin, and uh we ended up winning it, and I didn't and we just packed our shit up and left you know after we played, and then everybody came back to the, the drummer's house and says, "You guys won, you guys won and I said, won what?" you know we didn't really even think of it as you know we were just wanting to play anywhere we could play, we'd play parties and stuff. And we just had a blast. And by the time I think we were, the summer was over, you know, the band sort of fell apart because the parents were getting tired of, the bass player's parents were telling them, you're going to college, you ain't doing this shit. We we're we We're all dedicated musicians for about a whole summer. You know, it was hard finding musicians that I was happy with. I had ended up hanging out with this one bass player for uh, the next two summers and you know, during school. And we formed a band. We had, we found four guitar players. I was teaching them all the parts. So I was trying to do like orchestrations of my music. And, and the only thing we had to record was an eight track, not an eight track, like in a, professional studio and eight track tape you know and I'd buy blank eight tracks and record on that we had two microphones we'd stick them in there and it just sounded like shit it was god-awful and uh and I took that down to Armandilla World Headquarters and a matter of fact Carol was the lady that took my tape and she listened to it and she said yeah you guys need a little work you know and uh so we never did get to play there but I kept at it. Then I got to work for I went to I was Johnny Winter was coming town, it was about seventy five, I think. He was playing with Floyd Radford, another badass guitar player and and uh it was probably my favorite lineup with Johnny Winter. Um just because it was a really rocking outfit. I got there at like nine in the morning and it was nobody there except the roadies. And I was there and uh, one of the roadies came up to me and he goes, what what are you doing here? He says, I'm here to see Johnny Winter. He said, well, you're a little early, aren't you? I said, well, I wanted to make sure I got, you know, good seats, I'm here to see him. He says, you want a job? I said, sure. So he just put me to work. He said, first thing, he says, okay, see this thing? write on this piece of paper winter bago. okay just make it big letters winter bago, one piece of paper and so i just took that pen and i wrote winter bago and then i said then i started writing all this other stuff on it cool man far out you know stuff like that <laughs> the guy comes back what the hell is this? I said, just write Winnebago on it. He flipped it over. He said, write Winnebago and that's it. So I did that and I said, okay, I'm sorry, man. I'm just, you know, excited, you know. And he says, okay, what else you wanna do? He says, how many tickets you need? And so like, I got tickets for all my brother and everybody, I called him up. And uh, so we had four seats right there in the front, man. And uh, Point Blank opened up for him and they kicked ass and then Johnny Winter came out and just tore it up and just smoking the whole and I was like this is the coolest you know we we're right up front had the best seats you know At the end of the show the roadie that you know was put me to work and everything says come up here come on up my little brother came up with me and we looked kinda alike and Johnny Winter's cross eyed right so I noticed it you know because that was the first time I seen him up close like that and so I stuck my hand out to get my hand shaken with Johnny Winter and my little brother and Johnny Winter reaches over to my little brother and shakes his hand and then walks off. And I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> but, You know, that's just the way it was, but it was cool. I still, you know, I'll never forget that. I mean, it was just the greatest day of my life, I thought. I got more involved into different things, and playing music wasn't really my big thing anymore. I was was trying to support myself, looking for jobs and stuff, and I found out it was hard to find bands that would stay together and really work hard, find dedicated musicians. And so, it was kinda tough, and I ended up doing odd jobs and stuff, but later on about, as I hit about nineteen twenty, I started really working harder on the music thing. And uh, we went into this one band uh, and we were called Tough Luck. And we started getting, you know, gigs where we were opening up. We opened up for Blood Rock. I don't know if you remember them. But they had the one song, DOA. I remember we were flying along and hit something in the air, and then it would go doo-doo-doo-doo. They had this this big hit. They were sort of regional, they had a regional hit, you know. We opened up for uh, let's see, Blood Rock, Bubble Puppy, uh, Leslie West of Mountain. We opened up for them, and uh, we got to play the Armadillo World Headquarters, and so we actually did some stuff, you know. Bass player got shot in a drug deal, and and the, and then then we got all our equipment stolen, and sort of things just went to crap at that point. And that's why we we're called Tough Luck. No, that wasn't why. We thought Tough Luck was actually a cool name, you know, it but it wasn't. <laughs> And we sort of had a, a, a pretty good following, you know, for a local band and stuff. And we did as good as we could, went as far as we could. But they the paper wrote an article on it. The American Statesman wrote an article. And it was called um, <laughs> Glitter Punk is what they called us. Our vocals were just really weird because i had a real low voice and then the other guitar player had a real high voice i mean higher than getty lee you know so when we sang together it was kind of neat but it was just we just weren't that great of singers i think but after that um i start i went to a recording studio back then there was like maybe four or five studios in town one of them was earth and sky and it was ran by a guy named Carrie Crafton, he took me under his wing, started showing me, you know, how to record and, you know, how to use a mixing board and stuff. And he used my house for a a pre-production studio. He'd come over there and uh, he'd do his bands. He'd say, rehearse over here, then we'll go to the studio and, and lay down some tracks. And so he started teaching me that. And from there, I got into, I was going to electronics school at the time. And I said, well, I really like electronics, you know, and I might as well get into it because I was figuring computers were just about to happen. This was about 1983, 84, and all this stuff was happening. And so I just got into that and I learned all about electronics and I learned to record and then I got an offer with Radio Shack to work on their computers, Tandy computers, after I finished school and I went, moved to Houston and there I met a guy who had just retired. I got a gig playing this one homeless shelter and his wife's sister liked me and so she told him about me he came and saw me and i was trying to run live sound and play guitar at the same time and and he says do you mind if i uh, help you out i can adjust this for you and i said sure go ahead if you know what you're doing that would be great you know cuz i'm having a enough time just playing the damn guitar <laughs> and so he started twisting my knobs and we just started sounding great you know and I was going damn this guy knows what he's doing you know and so I said how where'd you learn to do that And he goes Van Halen (laughs) what he says yeah I used to work for him and but I don't do that anymore I uh, got out of the business And he sort of showed me a few things, a few tricks here and there, and I learned from that. After, uh, um, oh, I guess about three years in Houston, I had had enough of. Uh, working on computers for for uh, <laughs> all the prisons. It was one day I walked in and you know one of the prisons, I was on death row and I'm working on the computer and one of the guys, one of the prisoners walks in and he goes, "I like computers." Two guards rushed in and grabbed him, but they, they came in and said, oh, Mr. Meyer, we're sorry about that. And I said, okay, it's all right. But after that, it was just, I just said, you know what, I think I'm going to go back to Austin and get out of this business and, I moved back to Austin and I started a little. I built a little recording studio and and uh, from there it just I started getting gigs there. And then one day a friend of mine says, "Hey Curtis, can you come to the back room? The, their sound man left." And so that's how I started getting into live sound. I started working at the back room and uh, that in the studio. And then I started getting gigs with Johnny Hernandez and that's little Joe and La Familia's brother and uh, and I just started getting all kinds of gigs and people started hiring me here and there and I just went crazy after that and I just started doing sound but I still like to play guitar. I got to work for Jimi Hendrix once,
2: but was, he was dead, it was already dead. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: but it was, you know, it's a pretty cool story. I entered this contest, it was uh, the Jimi Hendrix guitar competition, you had to mail in a tape and everything, so I was like, cool. Did
2: you mail in an 8-track?
1: I ma- No, it was actually a cassette, and uh, I thought it was pretty good, you know tape and and it said just record a couple of Hendrix songs and send it in. I sent it in and then the sound company I was working for called me and says, hey, uh, I got you a gig. You're going to be doing sound for the Jimi Hendrix guitar competition. I said, shit, that means I'm disqualified. I can't work. So, but I had, you know, that's how I made my money. I had to do it. But I got to work it and, uh, I'm sitting there, I ran the sound for everybody in the the whole, you know, competition. I was like, oh man, I'm better than all these fuckers. (laughs) You know how guitar players are. We can all do that better. So, I walk in, after it's all over, I walk in the green room. And I'd met Jimi Hendrix's dad, that was cool. I got to meet his dad, talk to him for a while, and I met his sister. So I, I got to know them and, and that was great. And then, uh, I, so I walk in the green room and there are all the judges and everybody's in there. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know y'all was in here. One of the main judges, I think he is from Fender, he goes, wait a minute, what did you, who did you think was the best? And I said, Oh, it was that Italian guy. And so I walk out and thinking nothing of it. And then the Italian guy wins. Two months later, I'm getting ready. I got a gig and uh, I got my bass player and drummer. I'm calling, I call up my bass player and says, hey, you ready for the gig? Are you gonna come pick me up or how are we gonna do this today? You know, whatever. And he goes, Oh, man, I I was going to call you, but I just got this gig. I'm going over to Italy. This guy that won this Jimi Hendrix guitar competition just hired me to be a bass player. And I said, son of a bitch. And the guy that it was was the guy that I said it was an Italian guy. So he ended up winning the whole thing worldwide.
2: All on your vote, huh? Yeah,
1: and then. <laughs> <laughs> and then my bass player. I lost my bass player to that guy.
2: Casual word in the wrong ear, and all of a sudden you <laughs> lost your bass player. <laughs> You're a dad, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I have two wonderful kids. Um, and I found out I have a third kid a couple years ago from when I was out on the road and, and the, the lady finally got a hold of me and told me that we had a son together. He's 38. He went to Rice University. Um, he played football for Rice. He's doing fine. He did fine without me and and she did probably a lot better without me. than. Did you get to meet him and everything? I haven't met him yet. We, I'm waiting for the opportunity when it's when he wants to know about me and all that. But yeah, um, and the best thing I think that I've learned as, because I set out to be a rock star, you know, the best guitarist in the world, set all that in my head. But you know, I I feel like as I went, I think I learned that. The best things in life are just the best things in life, you know, just doing it, you know, and there's failures and there's, you know, highs and lows and I I think uh, I've had a good life, you know, at this point, I'm 62 now. I'm, I don't regret a lot of it, you know, there's things I do regret, of course, you know, but uh, I don't regret not being a rock star because it probably would have killed me and I don't think I would have lived to be 62 because I was pretty wild. I had my wild streak. You know, I I, I don't want to use the names to protect the innocent. (laughs) But I'm pretty mellow, I think far as it goes. And I think it kind of kept me in an even keel.
2: You got any other, any other stories? The ones where you don't protect the innocent? I could say some
1: things about, you know, but uh, there would be times where I would meet musicians and, and then they would be, just turn out to be complete assholes. But I think of it now as i look back and i think well they probably were having a bad day and no telling what they were going through um, on the other side of it and what i could have done maybe to make them nicer it's you know and i could mention names but i don't want to do that because a lot of people will have um, it could have been a bad day they had. And they're probably really nice people. I mean, cause we all are, we're all real nice and we're all assholes at the same time. So I don't want to say any of those bad stories and I could say some good ones too, but I think I'll leave it with the Jimi Hendrix and the Johnny Winter. <laughs> I think it's better that way. <laughs>
2: That was Curtis Myers talking about how he got into music and into sound.
0: There was some good music on there.
2: There was some good music in there. It's fun to see him play, too. He loves it so much, and it's a love that's lasted for decades. It's fun to watch him with a guitar in his hands. Thank you, Curtis, for spending the time with me and sharing your music. Again, check out Curtis Myers and Cave Pool. The album is called One.
0: Curtis, I'm looking forward to seeing you live one one day with Rod.
2: With me? Like, what am I going to sing? I don't sing. Of course you do. Thanks, Curtis. Uh, I think this is probably the, the end of this season. I don't have anything else lined up. Do you have anything else lined up?
0: Um, in my mind.
2: <laughs> so... There, that's the end of season two. Thanks for listening to season two. We'll be back in, I don't know how long, when season three. got to dig up some interviews.
0: Remember to email Rod if you want to share your transformational stories. What's your email address, Rod?
2: My email address is rod at rodhaden.com. R-O-D-H-A-D-E-N. There's a link on the webpage. Pa- web so yeah, tell me, tell me your transformational story. Or if you know somebody who's got a good story, put me in touch, help me out, I need more, I need more content.
0: Yeah, and you can say who would you uh, rather have you um, interview, if you like my style or Rod's style. In my style, I, I tend to like to leave um, my voice in there, my questions, Rod likes to frame it into a story format. So we are a bit different. I like to lo- know more about relationships And Rod is more, I don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You do like to hear people talk about love.
0: Love makes the world go round. See you next season. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year.
2: Bye.